Well, good morning. Good to be back with you here again on this uh, nice fall day. Leaves are starting to change. Uh, my wife and I are getting our second uh, bout of autumn since we were gone last week down in the mountains of North Carolina and Tennessee. Got to see some of the leaf colors uh, in the higher elevations and excited about seeing fall here in Canal Winchester as well. So, but glad to be back with you continuing our series in the book of Malachi. Uh, if you were here last week, or even if you weren't, Eric uh, came and spoke on the fourth disputation in the book of Malachi, dealing with divine justice. And uh, it was a heavy passage, and one of the things that was, or should have been very clear, is that the people failed to see their own sin but they were really quick to be able to see the sin in other people and to want God's hammer to come down upon them. And so God rebukes them, and he promises to send his messenger who would come to purify both priests and people. And he goes on to say that there's a day that is coming when God would come and visit them in judgment. He would draw near to them in judgment. But what is so amazing, not only about that passage, but the entire book of Malachi, is that God continued to offer them the opportunity to repent and to receive his blessings. I mean, you just stop to think about what God put up with and what he was putting up with as these words were being spoken. But I think something is even more amazing than that because 2,500 years have passed since God spoke through the prophet Malachi to the people of his day. And you know what? Today, God still invites us to repent and to receive his blessings. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time together here this morning. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that as we uh, open up the scriptures, as we um, listen to what you have to say to us, that our, our hearts would be attentive, that we would be responsive to your word. And Lord, that you would be pleased with us. Holy Spirit, be our teacher and our guide here this morning, I pray. Amen. I read a story about Queen Mary who uh, often visited Scotland. She, she did it on a yearly basis. And she was so loved by the people that oftentimes she would go through the land and through the villages and towns without um, her security escort, uh, I guess be similar to our secret service. And she mingled freely with the people. And one day she was out with a group of children and she traveled a little bit further than she anticipated going and then noticed the skies grew quite dark. So afraid that it might rain, she ended up stopping by uh, someone's home, knocked on the door and asked the lady who answered the door if she could borrow an umbrella. And she said, I will return it to you tomorrow. Well, the woman who lived there didn't recognize her as the queen. 
and thought to herself, okay, I'll, I'll give her an umbrella, but she didn't want to give her her good umbrella, so she gave her an old, worn out, torn and tattered umbrella with one of those ribs that were broken on it. And so that was it. She didn't really think she would hear from uh, this woman again until the next day when there was a knock on the door and there was a royal guard standing there. And the guard says to the woman, the queen wanted me to come and bring you the umbrella back and to thank you for letting her borrow it. And the woman was just standing there in shock. And then she began to weep. And what she said was, oh, what an opportunity I missed. I didn't give the queen my very best. I think that could almost summarize the book of Malachi. Because not giving God the very best is an important theme in this book. And we come back to it again here this morning. But if you remember in chapter 1, God rebukes the people for bringing blemished, blind, sick, lame animals to sacrifice on his altar. But unlike the woman um, that, that, that gave the queen the, uh, the umbrella, who, who then regretted not giving her her best, what we find is that the people really don't seem to care. Now, verse 6 of chapter 3 serves as a hinge between uh, the fourth disputation and the fifth disputation. And if you, if you look at it, you can kind of see why. It, it, it feels like it fits the passage that Eric preached on last week, but it also fits the passage that we're looking at this week. And that's why I say I, I refer to it as a, a hinge. Keep in mind when you're reading the Bible, um, when it was originally written, there were not uh, any chapter headings. There were no chapter numbers. There were no verses. And so they were added later to help us be able to find passages of Scripture and to help us um, remember where things are. But originally it wasn't there. So if you would, let's take a look at verse 6. For I, the Lord... Do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, if you're honest, there has probably been a time or times in your life when you have wondered, where is the God of justice? That was the question that was being asked last week in our text. But when we think like that, we need to remember something. And it's right here in verse 6. We need to remember that God is not like us. He does not change. Share a few verses with you from Psalm 102. Of old you founded the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. Even they will perish, but you endure. And all of them will wear out like a garment. Like clothing, you will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years 
will not come to an end. The apostle James tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God does not change. The fact that God does not change is known as the immutability of God. The immutability of God. It is a doctrine that should encourage us, it should motivate us, and it should excite us. Now, if you turn on the news, you know, you might come away feeling like people are getting away with murder sometimes, literally, getting away with murder. And that's where we're tempted to wonder, where is the God of justice? But we should be encouraged because nothing escapes God's sight, nor his judgment. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, we read that nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. We may think we're getting away with stuff. People may think they're getting away with murder, but God sees. And there will be a day where we will have to give an account. God sees all, and he judges without partiality, if not in this life, in the next. Now, God's judgment may delay, but we need to remember, it is certain. It is coming. Now, this truth should not only encourage us, it should motivate us to godly living. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this, he says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy in godly lives. The immutability of God not only encourages us and motivates us to live a godly life, but it should also excite us. Why, you ask? Well, it's right there in verse 6. Because we are not consumed. I mean, think about that for a moment. Because the Lord does not change, we are not destroyed. Now that's something to get excited about. That because God is eternally faithful to his promises, that he, yes, he's, he's infinitely just, but he's also infinitely merciful and gracious to us. And God doesn't change. So it's not like last month he was merciful and gracious and this month he's just totally just and righteous and full of wrath. God doesn't change. If you belong to Christ, you ought to rejoice in the unchangeableness of God. 
You really should. Praise God he doesn't change. Praise God he is not fickle and capricious. Praise God that he still invites us to repent and receive his blessings. Well, in verses 7 through 12, we again see this familiar pattern of discourse. Declaration, objection, resolution. From the very beginning, we see it. He says in verse 7, From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, what God is saying there is is that, guys, you've got a long history. (laughs) From from the very beginning, you have been a stiff-necked people. You have turned from my commands and you have pursued your own ways. It was their problem and it is our problem. Because the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all turned to our own way. Pursuing our own will, our own desires. We are bent on on doing what we want to do. We're rebels at heart. And oftentimes it's not until we feel the consequences of our sin that we turn back to God. And I will add that for some of us we have a high tolerance for misery. Sometimes I, I don't understand that people have to go through the things that they have to go through for God to be able to get their attention. Praise God, he often does. But we can be pretty stiff-necked. So what's the solution? God says, return to me. Return to me. That word return can also be translated repent. So it's as if God is saying return and repent to the God that you have abandoned and he will return to you. I will return to you. But then notice, but you say, how shall we return? This is not a question of clarification. This is a a question that isn't even really a question. It's a disputation. They, they disagree with what God is saying. God has told them to return to them, but they're not asking for instructions how to return. So when they say, how, 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 how shall we return? They're not saying, Lord, tell us exactly uh, how can we do this so we can get right with you. That's not what they're saying. What they're saying is, what do you mean return to me? We never left you. We, we, we never strayed. The New Living Translation uh, renders this verse, uh, how shall we return when we've never gone away? You see where their attitude was, where their heart was in this. Now, many people today say or at least think the very same things. What do you mean, return to you? I go to church every Sunday. I I pray. I read my Bible. I go to small group. I serve on the welcome team. What do you you mean, return to you? I never left you. 
See how easy it is. God is speaking to people who were blind to their own sinfulness. They were blind to their faithfulness. And and we know this so clearly, and they should have known it so clearly, just in what we've covered so far in the book of Malachi. They failed to give their best to God. They worshiped half-heartedly. They were unfaithful to each other and to their spouses. They disobeyed God's precepts. They married foreign women and committed idolatry in the process. So here's the question that I've been pondering this week. Is it possible? Is it possible for some of us here this morning to be as blind as they were? See, the thing about it oftentimes is blind people sometimes don't know they're blind, which almost doesn't make sense, but, but, but they can't see their sin. And that's why they dispute with God here. That we're, we're going through the moment. We're doing all these things. We keep going to the temple. We're offering our sacrifices. It's not like we've walked away from you, God. But God says, you have. You have. And in verses 8 through 10, God turns the tables on them by asking the people a question and then providing the answer. Look at it. Verse 8. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. It's as if God is saying, listen, all right, you don't think you have left me. Well, let me give you some more proof. Here it is. You ready for it? You're robbing me. You're stealing from your creator. That's what God's saying. And of course, because they're blind, they respond. But you say, how have we robbed you? And again, I I wonder, how could they even ask this question after everything that God has already told them in the first two and a half chapters of this book? God's already told them that what they were doing was wrong, that they were stealing from God back in chapter one when we were looking at the second disputation. By way of reminder, let me read it. Verse eight, chapter one. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? Verse 13. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat. Underscore the word cheat there. Who is, has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. See, the people kept the best for themselves. And they gave to God that which they did not want themselves. They gave God the leftovers. But now, in chapter 3, 
God shows that they are robbing him, not just in the quality of their offerings, but in the quantity of their offerings. How have we robbed you? They ask. And God responds there in verse 8, in your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. And we need to remember that Malachi was a contemporary of Nehemiah. And for those of you that have been here at New Life for a while, we realized a couple years ago, we, we did a study in the book of Nehemiah. And when Nehemiah came back from Persia into their home country, back to Jerusalem, um, he found the temple uh, storehouses empty. That's where they would store all the tithes and the offerings, whether it be grain or fruit or whatever. They would store everything there. He came back and it was empty. And as a result of that, many of the priests and the Levites actually had to go back to their homes, leave the temple, go back to their homes, work their land so that they could provide for their families. Because the people of God were not giving. And they couldn't support the temple ministry or the Levites or the priests. Now, when you, when you think about it, they weren't just robbing God. They were robbing their fellow countrymen. And they were robbing the priests and the Levites who were serving the people. And they were actually robbing themselves, but I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Little excursus on the word tithe or tithing. I'm sure most of you have heard that. Some of you may even tithe. The word tithe comes from the Hebrew word that means ten or tenth. And so in the Old Testament, when a person tithes, they gave 10% of their possessions or their income or their livelihood to the Lord in service of the temple and in, in, in caring for the priests and the Levites, whom God way back when said that tribe, the tribe of Levi, was to have no inheritance. All the other tribes could have an inheritance. They couldn't. They were to be taken care of by the other tribes. And in bringing their, their tithes and their offerings to the Lord, they were actually expressing their gratitude for God's blessing in their lives, thanking him for his gracious and bountiful uh, provisions. Now, many Christians who tithe, 
because there are many Christians who tithe, usually give 10%. Those who tithe give 10%. And it's easy to see why. The word itself means 10 or 10th. And that was the practice in the Old Testament. So it seems to be reasonable to assume that God wants us to continue to tithe. But I think we have a very shallow understanding of tithing within the church. See if I can clarify. The Jews actually gave 23% of their income or their possessions to the Lord each year. You say, well, that doesn't jive with tithe. Oh, but it does. Because they tithe twice a year. Two times a year, they would give 10%. And every third year, they would give another 10%. So it averaged out to about 23% a year. So most Christians who tithe don't understand that. They simply focus on the word tenth and give 10% of their income. Now, Christians are not under the law. So in the New Testament, there is no express teaching on tithing. You won't find a command in Scripture in the New Testament that tells us as Christians to tithe. But tithing was a practice long before it was a part of the law. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ. He represented God. Jacob also tithe. This was before the law, before tithing became a part of the people of Israel's worship. But again, the New Testament doesn't command us to give 10%, let alone 23%. It teaches what is known as grace giving. And some of you guys are familiar with that. The only requirement in Scripture, and you can look primarily at 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 to find a lot of these um, verses, but the only requirement we have is that we give willingly, regularly, cheerfully, generously, and even sacrificially. That's what God requires of us. And we give according to what we have, proportionally. We don't give to the Lord because we have to. We give because we want to, because we love him, and because it's a, a fitting response to all that God has done for us and given to us. But here's the question I want us to wrestle with here when we leave this morning. If God's people in the Old Testament gave more than 20% of their income or their livelihood, what should we as Christians give? We who have been born again by the Spirit of God and have been blessed by every, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. 
Now, you're probably all freaking out now that I said that. But please hear me. I'm not saying that we ought to give more than the Old Testament saints, although it may appear that I have said that. And some of you are able to do that and should do that. But I think the question we all need to ask ourselves is simply this. Am I truly, truly giving willingly? Am I truly giving regularly and cheerfully and generously and even sacrificially to the Lord? Am I doing that? Start there. Start there and see what God will do. Now, I want you to consider the following statistics. Despite living in the most affluent country in the world, the average American gives about 2% of their income to charity. That's, that's not a whole heck of a lot. But that's not surprising. These people don't know Jesus, right? I mean, it's the average American. Well, guess how much the average Christian gives? 2.5%. So apparently our faith accounts for a 0.5 difference. What's even more troubling is the fact that during the Great Depression, Christians gave 3.3%. It almost seems that the more we have, the less we give. The average giving by adults who attend U.S. Protestant churches is about $17 a week. 37% of regular church attendees and evangelicals don't give to the church at all. And only 5% of church members give regularly. And another study revealed, do we have any millennials in here? We've got a few millennials in here. Another study revealed that 84% of millennials gave less than $50 a year to charity even though they say that charitable giving ranks high on their list of priorities. So based on these statistics, what do you conclude? Simply this. I think there's a lot of room for growth when it comes to giving in the church among God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promises to bless his people if they would obey his commands. And if they did not obey, he would not only not bless them, he said he would curse them. I don't know about you. I don't want to be cursed by God. I want his blessings in my life. But we rob ourselves of blessings when we fail to give to God what is rightfully his. Now listen, I've learned the hard way. I've been walking with Jesus for a few decades now. And I've learned the hard way that when you fail to give what God requires and, and you look at what you've kept for yourself, um, it's amazing how quickly that money disappears. It, it's, it's, it's those times when it's like, I got to pay the bills and I, gotta, I just, I can't afford to give to the Lord. And so I hoarded it. 
because I needed it. And it would just slip right through my fingers. And I wonder, why am I not making any progress? Why can't I get on top of my financial situation? The prophet Haggai tells us in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And that's how I felt. Like my money was going into a bag with holes. Because I wasn't honoring the Lord. Now most of you guys know I, I grew up Catholic. And I, I have some fond memories of going to, to church on Sunday mornings. And I say going to church because that's what I thought the church was, a building. But I remember we'd go and we would have these pews with the padded kneelers. Anybody familiar with those? Okay. Um, And I would always be next to my mom. And one of the things that was always special was my mom would always reach down with her hand. She put her hand there. So if I was on this side, our pinkies would touch. And she she would blink my pinky. And as, you know, as a, as a little kid, you know, this was cool. This was cool. As I got older, not so much, okay? Um, but one of the other things that she did when I was a kid was she would always give me money to put into the offering plate. And she would usually give me a quarter early on. Eventually, it would be a dollar bill. And it was like, when that offering thing came by, I wanted everybody to see I'm putting the dollar in the plate, you know? My dad freaked me out one day. I saw him give a $5 bill. I went, wow! You know? But that's, that was the context that I understood giving in. And to this day, the, the Catholic Church does not survive based on the offerings that it takes. It survives on spaghetti dinners and bingo and other things like that. But not by the giving of God's people. My early Christian years, after I, after I became a Christian, um, first of all, this was, I, I, I never read the Bible. I mean, tithing, I had no clue what that was. So I didn't really understand. And so I started from almost, you know, a quarter a Sunday mentality to where I am today. And it wasn't easy. My faith had to be built up to a place where I would be willing to trust God with a very important part of my my life. I mean, this is my well-being. This is my future in a sense. I mean, is God even real? I don't want to throw money out the window. But I but but I love God, but I realize that loving God is not enough. Loving God will motivate us to want to give, but it's not enough. New Testament grace giving requires that we actually trust God. We can love God, but if we don't trust God, we're not going to give the way he wants us to give. And we will find that what is left over does not go 
um, very far if we don't give with the right attitude. But if we do give, trusting God, loving God, we find that what we give goes much further. What we have left goes much further than we ever thought that it would. One thing to keep in mind, though, is even after you have given to the Lord, what you have left is not yours. See, we can fall into a trap. Well, I'm going to give to the Lord what's his. The rest of it's mine. Mine. Right? No. It's all, it all belongs to the Lord. We are just called to be stewards of it. So that's why he says, bring the full tithe. Verse 10, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows, some translation says the floodgates, open the windows of the floodgates of heaven for you and to pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you. I will rebuke him. See, when you look at this text, what we come to realize is that the people were not only guilty of bringing blemished, blind, lame, and sick animals to the Lord to sacrifice, they were also withholding a portion of the tithe. The problem wasn't just with the quality of their offering, but with the quantity of the offering. That's why God says, bring the full tithe into my storehouse. Now, this is the only place in Scripture that I'm aware of where God actually tells his people to test him. Because in other parts of the Bible, you read, do not put the Lord your God to the test. So why does God tell his people to test them? Well, the most obvious answer is is because he has commanded them to do it. This is an imperative. Put me to the test. So if God gives you command, you better obey it. But God is commanding this specific people at this specific time to do this. Testing God in arrogant unbelief is wrong. But here, God commands them to put him to the test. God is challenging them. Bring the entire tithe into the storehouse and then watch and see if I will not be faithful to my promises. In essence, what God is saying, go ahead, I dare you. I dare you dare you to obey me and test me and see if I will not open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing on you until there is no more need. Now, sometimes when you turn on the TV and you'll hear this verse and a whole bunch of other verses quoted from those televangelists, the shucksters, the ones that are clamoring for money, sow your seed of faith, cast your bread upon the water and it will come back to you. You know, give a hundred bucks, you'll get a thousand. Well, you, you've heard it all, right? Well, look closely at this verse. I will pour out a blessing on you until there is no more need, right? God is promising to meet their needs, not their greed, We don't give to get. God is not someone that we use. That if we follow some formula, that if we do this, God will do this. He must do this. 
By the way, the devourer mentioned there in verse 11 is most likely a reference to locusts or some other devastating pest. In other words, what God is saying here is, I will protect your livestock. I will protect your crops from insects and from disease. But there's one more blessing that we see, and it's here in verse 12. It says, then all the nations will call you blessed. For you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. You see, when we, when we trust God to meet our needs, we give others the opportunity to see God at work in our lives. We give others the opportunity to see the faithfulness of God in our lives. They get to see faith in action. When we obey and give as God prescribes, he will bless us so that we can be a blessing to others. Then all around us will say, you guys are blessed. That's really amazing that you can do that because I, I don't know how you can give like you give and still pay your bills. I don't, I don't know how you can do what you do. And it's just, but, but I look at your marriage I look at your family. I look at the peace in your life. Clearly, God has blessed you in your obedience. Listen, God owns everything. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. I love that song we sang earlier, and I wrote down the lyric, to the king in need of nothing. He's in need of nothing. But he knows. He knows the things that often tug at and capture our heart. And just this one aspect in life, the, 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 the aspect of giving to the Lord, the way the Bible prescribes is a sure way for us to make sure that God has captured our heart and that the things of this world have not. When you open your hand to give, you're also opening your hand to receive from God. You can't receive from God with a closed fist. I want God's blessing in my life. I don't want to end up at the end of my life in tears thinking what an opportunity I missed to give God my very best. He has given me so much and, and here, right now, in the here, in the now, I want to love, trust, and obey him. And I, I don't know where you are in your giving, but if it's not where it ought to be. I want you to remember something. God does not change. That's why we're not consumed. And that's why he still gives us the opportunity to repent and to receive his blessings. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. 
Lord, I thank you for the challenge that you have given to us this morning as we have seen how you challenged your people in Malachi's day. Lord, we are so grateful that you are an unchanging God, that your love and your mercy is everlasting. And Father, I pray that we would have responsive hearts and that wherever we are in our faith journey with you, that Lord, that you would grow us still, that you would mature us, that we would become willing and generous and cheerful givers unto you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.